Warning. The Kingdom Cast podcast contains spoilers about comic books, movies, and entertainment in general, as well as anything else that crosses their minds. Please do not take any medical advice seriously, nor legal advice that they may or may not give out. For that matter, it's probably for the best that you take nothing that they say seriously. Welcome back to Kingdom Cast's podcast. Put your 3D glasses on now. Joining us once again is Sandra Miyagi-Do Karate Swindle. I'm Stan Daniel. And with me, as always, is Albert Marsh. So, Albert. Yeah. Thank you for joining us again. (laughs) We got the uh, Hoover Library event coming up at the end of July, the last weekend of July. Are you psyched about that? Uh, Yeah. It's online panels. Okay. So let me give everybody the rundown. Once again, this year, it's going to be online panels. It's not going to be at the library itself. We'll be pre-recording a few panels and giving you the times for those pre-recordings so you can come in and participate. Sandra, Albert, and I will have a few comic book panels. Miss Marie, Michael, Nerf Herder, Nip, and myself will be doing several of the Star Wars panels. In addition to that, there's, there's panels galore. I know they've got Van Plexico coming back. Yeah, there'll be another special Avengers panel with him and the other two authors, Joe Crow and David Wright of the Avengers Assemble companion books to the Avengers comic books. So just tons of great stuff. Check out their site. Check out their Facebook page at Hoover Public Library Sci-Fi Fantasy Festival. So take a look at it and you can see their schedules as they posted up there in the different panels and the different guests they're going to have. Be ready for that. Plus, plus, if you want to watch Sandra Swindle really whore out Namor there with her merchandise... <laughs> Like she did last year, by all means, join us. (laughs) We got an email from Fred. Fred says, hi, Stan, or more affectionately known as Muttley. Yeah, that's great. I'm not at all self-conscious about my laugh now. I hope you, Eeyore, and the fishmonger's wife are doing well. (laughs) I'm trying to sell you well. (laughs) Would you rather be Namor's wife or, or Muttley? You know, pick one. <laughs> Fred goes on to say that he is trying to sell his comic collection on eBay, but he finds it a slow process. Have we had any experience selling with mycomicshop.com? I would be interested in an episode about how to sell my comics. You and a few other people, Fred. Keep up the good work and tell Albert to be more chivalrous to Sandra. He <laughs> mansplains her a lot. <laughs> what? Albert? <laughs> You're mansplaining to Sandra there. That's well, she Namor explains it constantly. <laughs> right. That's right. <laughs> I can't help it if I hate women. <laughs> God, Albert. It's their fault. <laughs> their fault. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, you're, you're doing exactly what he said, Albert. <laughs> Fred, we are. We are going to do a whole episode on how to buy and sell comic books. And in that, I'll address what you were asking about mycomicshop.com, also known as Lone Star. 
We'll go over that. We're working on the outline of that episode right now, as a matter of fact, but we're going to do that because we're getting a lot of email about how to sell their comics, how much their comics are worth, and we're going to dedicate one entire special episode to just that. Brad also sent us an email. He says he wants a throwdown, drag out, nothing but Star Wars episode with Stan against other Star Wars fans. Make this a thing. Well, you and Sandra are not Star Wars fans. Isn't that going to happen at the um, the, uh, Hoover thing? Yeah, Brad, you'll you'll get plenty of that. However... Michael Nerfherder Nip has asked that we not discuss the sequels because he's conceded that he cannot win any debate with me concerning the sequels and that he'd rather have it just all friendly and easygoing stuff where we talk about the Bad Batch and this and that. And so Michael's getting up there in years. And so I, I told him, yeah, that'll be fine with me. I'll give you a break. Marie is on these panels, on the Star Wars panels as well. And he can only go so far without insulting Marie. I take full advantage of that. Because <laughs> Marie loves the sequels, too. The We're both sequels. big. Are we talking about the, the Kylo Ren and, and yeah. Ray? Oh, okay. Yeah, you know them horrible movies. They're not horrible movies. You know they're not horrible movies. It just hurts you how great they are. <laughs> what are you all about? So join us for the Hoover Public Library Sci-Fi Fantasy Festival for more of that. Let's talk a little bit about Loki, episode yes. one. What a great episode. I loved it. I did too. It, they give you what you need in the first episode to tell you, okay, look. You may have enjoyed WandaVision. You may have enjoyed Falcon and Winter Soldier, but we're really going to kick it into gear with this. Tom Hiddleston is great in it. As my wife pointed out, I'm sure you enjoyed the beefcake they gave you out of this too, Sandra. (laughs) Well, yes, that was a nice little treat. But I mean, the whole thing was was awesome. I mean, if you like Loki, I mean, from the very beginning, it's just... Him and his glorious purpose. It's, it was a wonderful episode. The Time Variance Authority is awesome. Owen Wilson does a great job in this. He's a great counterpoint to Loki. He yes. really is. At this point, I think they're screwing with us when they had the little girl point to the window in the church in the 1800s mm-hmm. when Owen Wilson says, who's behind this? And she points, and that is clearly a stained glass rendition of Mephisto, but yet it turns out that it's Loki, another version of Loki that they're after at the end. But I, I really think they're just screwing with us with the Mephisto thing now. Probably. Well, the horns. Remember, Loki, Loki's helmet does have horns. Well, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It, it is Loki. It is lo- because we learn at the end of the episode that it's a version of Loki doing this. Owen Wilson point blank says that. Doesn't go out of his way to say Mephisto doesn't exist. I think the people at Marvel Cinematic are just kind of screwing with us with the Mephisto thing. Albert, tell us why you absolutely hated it. <laughs> I'm not really hated it. I, I thought it was okay. I thought as far as the episode one goes, it did fine as far as being good setup. So. And that's what you want out of the first episode. It's set up. You know you're going to get alternate reality views. The Infinity Stone thing where they're using them as paper holders were great. Well, see, I thought that was stupid. I didn't think like, that why was does, stupid. Why does everything in the MCU have to end up being just a joke? It's not just a joke. This comes directly from the comic books. I know that uh, you, 
the gauntlet only works in the universe it's from. Yeah. It was still a stupid joke. I don't take it as a joke. I take it as a way to illustrate. Not everybody's going to know that. Because that was Denise's first question when she said, are those Infinity Stones? Well, how are they? Real quick, explain to her, look, the multiple realities, the stones exist in multiple realities, but they only work in the realities that they're indigenous to. And the Time Variance Authority is set outside of most of those realities. And so the, you know, whatever sets of infinity stones they have, they're not going to work there. I thought it was interesting that they told Loki when Loki said, it wasn't me, it was the Avengers. Technically, he's right. It wasn't him. It was the Avengers. But then the Time Variance Authority informs him, no, they did what they were supposed to do. Yeah, I mean, that was a little bit of a cop out. So clearly they were okay with Captain America yeah. going back in time. <laughs> Which should serve as a point to Sandra that Captain America is always right. I need a sound for my eyeballs rolling. <laughs> I mean, if the Time Variance Authority has no problem rolling. with Steve, then clearly Steve is always right. <laughs> yeah, I don't think, yeah, you're not really connecting an action with a result correctly. <laughs> Well, I'm excited about this. I, I definitely enjoyed the first episode. I really do like the way Owen Wilson and Tom Hiddleston play off each other. Yeah, they work good together. They really do. And I wouldn't have, when they first showed us Owen Wilson in it, I was really curious. I was thinking, eh, how's that going to work? I like Owen Wilson. I just didn't know how he was going to play off of the character of Loki. Oh, what'd y'all think about the D.B. Cooper thing? <laughs> See, I, that was my favorite bit in the whole thing. I thought that was his, his like he lost what was like he lost a bet with Thor, so he had to go do it. Yeah, he lost a yeah. bet with Thor and Hemdell. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I enjoyed Owen Wilson and Loki, but I really enjoyed. Well, I'm gonna mangle this poor woman's name. One me Mosaku, female time variance Ooh. guard. Yeah, uh, Denise loved her too, and I did she too. I was thought she awesome. was awesome. <laughs> You're she feeling like, every bit of that now, aren't you? <laughs> she was in that uh, HBO show. Which, oh, Lovecraft? Yeah. Lovecraft Country. What? That's where I saw her before. Okay. Who was she All in right. Lovecraft Country? Oh, Ruby. She was her yeah. sister. Yeah. Oh, she looks completely different. Well, she did. The hair is different. Man, but she was taking nothing off of uh, off of Loki. I mean, absolutely nothing. She was no, so awesome. No, and I love the little collar effect thing where you you know the button you got the remote control yeah. to the collar and yeah, that was that was clever. I'm definitely looking forward to the rest of this. Loki Loki looks like it's going to deliver on every level. Yeah, and there's so much little bitty things in there that refer back to things in the MCU and in, in the Marvel Universe full of Easter eggs. Oh, um, God, you're not going yeah. to be able. Yeah, you're not going to be able to count the number of Easter eggs they're going to have coming and going on these episodes on the Loki episodes. Yeah. Just left and right. DC Comics puts out Rorschach issue number nine. No, I'm not reading it. No, I'm not going to read it. Albert said that nobody should read it but him. So, Albert, I assume you read it on behalf of all of us. I did. Most of the issue is just a guy going, hmm, and that's, that's literally half the issue. Is it hmm, or is it that hum thing that Rorschach No, does? there is a, they cut to, a, to someone in a Rorschach mask going hum sometimes as well. Oh, well, that sounds exciting. How is Frank Miller faring in all this? He's not in this issue, I don't believe. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Instead, they're just walking around a house for a whole issue, and that, that's it. Well, I think everybody knows how I feel about Tom King by now. I'm just not playing the stupid little game anymore. What's your point of view on Rorschach? You're still saying shelve it? Yeah, they spend a whole issue for a guy to find a beeper, and that's it. That's all they do. <laughs> just looking for a beeper, right? <laughs> well, they find it in a septic tank, and it somehow still works. Yeah, that's how I spent most of 1992, looking for beepers. <laughs> in septic tanks? No, not in a septic tank. I never, I never, if the beeper that I lost ended up in a septic tank, well, I'm just going to fork over the money for a new beeper. <laughs> Well, okay, so Albert says, forget about Rorschach number nine, move on with your life, and let's move on with some other reviews. DC Comics also this week, The Joker, issue number four, with a backup of his new female sidekick punchline that just does not seem to be making the waves everybody thought she was going to. I still like it. There was more Joker in this issue juxtaposition between the Joker and Commissioner Gordon worked great. Given that I'm I'm hoping she's a throwaway character, Lady Bane or whatever we're calling her, she's actually a fairly stout character in this. And I don't mean physically strong. I mean, Tanyan's taking time to develop her. This book gets better and better. Gillum March's art in it fits the storyline like a sock. This is a really, really good book. And again, I emphasize, I am so tired of Joker and Harley Quinn stories, it isn't funny. But this is majorly a Commissioner Gordon story, and it's one I think that really they're justified in telling. Why hasn't Commissioner Gordon just killed the Joker outright? Why doesn't he do so now? There's some compelling reasons on both sides for this, so I'm still enjoying the Joker. Yeah, I agree. The main story in the book, which is the Gordon Joker stuff, is like it's very well done. Lady Bane, is that yeah, uh, Lady I, Bane. Let's call her Lady Bane. Yeah, is. Yeah. she's not too overly developed or anything, but they do enough with her to where it's a good character. There are uh, no neon signs in the comic book pointing at her saying "next big thing" like no. there was punchline. No, the main story itself holds together pretty well. They do justify this story with the way it works as far as Gordon going after Joker around the world. And it stays interesting the whole time. Yeah, the backup is for punchline is pointless. Yeah. It's, it's just there to be there, I guess, because they knew people would buy it for Joker, so they stuck it there. But you can just ignore the backup if you want to. So I say buy it as well. Yeah. They pull it. I say, yeah, I say this pull is, it as well. This is definite pull it. And again, like Albert said on the punchline storyline, I was telling myself, look, at least Mirka and Dolfo is doing the art on it, but her art is doing nothing for the backup story in this. And that's a shame. She doesn't seem as emotionally invested in this as she does her own work because Mirka and Dolfo is an artist and a half. She's phenomenal. The art and the backup's fine, but it's not enough to save the backup story itself. But the Joker itself, both of us, pull it, pull it, pull it. <laughs> and we've got another one from DC Comics. Batman, the detective, issue number three of six. Writing duties on this are Tom Taylor and art by Adam Kubert. You know you're set in the future in this book. You just don't know exactly how far in the future or which future or anything else. But none of it matters. This book just works. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, it's just a real solid Batman story. That's it. That's it. And that's all any Bat fan is really asking for. Just Batman fans are different than every other type of comic book fan out there. All they really want 
is a solid Batman story. Yeah. If you just meet them halfway on that, you're going to get it. And this book does more than that. You know, the majority of the Batman stuff that gets shoved down our throats doesn't really ever deserve to see print. You couldn't do it with any other character and get away with it. This, this is solid. This is a good story. This is great art in it. Very enjoyable. Kubert does a fantastic job. I guess this maybe takes place in his Damien as Batman timeline, I assume, but but, it really, but that doesn't matter. It's just it's just a good Batman story. It's mostly about Batman dealing with the guy that taught him how to hunt people. Uh-huh. So, so most of this issue is like flashbacks to him training with them and everything, but, but it's a fantastic issue, so I, I highly recommend to pull it. Oh, yeah, yeah. And like we said before, it doesn't matter what timeline it takes place in. It's Batman. You know who Batman is. Just yeah. read the book. Enjoy it. For those of you who just want a good Batman story, this is a very good Batman story with the very good art in it. Both Albert and I are on the on the same boat with this. Pull it. From Marvel Comics, I'm going to give everybody a heads up out there. War of the Bounty Hunters, issue number one, came out this week. Also, Star Wars Bounty Hunters, number 13, which is part two of War of the Bounty Hunters, came out as well. It was a better than normal issue of Bounty Hunters in issue number 13. That's still... My least favorite Star Wars property right now is the Bounty Hunters comic book. The War of the Bounty Hunters one-shot, issue number one, which has Boba Fett on the standard cover with Slave One behind him, that's important. You're going to want to pick this up if you're a Star Wars fan or if you're just a collector fan because the person that has stolen Han Solo and Carbonite turns out to be Kira from the Solo movie, who has taken over for Crimson Dawn after... Darth Maul's death. This is a twist and a half on it. It's really good. It's really good storytelling. I thoroughly enjoyed it. So just heads up on War of the Bounty Hunters one shot issue number one. I say pull it. Star Wars Bounty Hunters issue number 13. Browse it. It's better than the normal issue of Bounty Hunters. But again, my least favorite Star Wars property out there. That's right, Albert. Kira. Mm-hmm. From Solo. And back over to Marvel Comics once again for another entry to the Hellfire Gala. Thank you for everybody correcting me on the pronunciation of that. Uh, but after the first 15 emails, I yeah, I got it. <laughs> I was saying it wrong. Okay. Excalibur issue number 21. Man, as much as the X-Men issue number 21 is a must read. Excalibur issue number 21, you can completely skip it and not miss a single solitary thing. They either need to let Jamie be the main character of this book or just get rid of it. The only time it was remotely interesting was with the uh, Ten of Swords crossover event. Yeah. That was because it just abandoned its own path in favor of the overall storyline. It doesn't even do that here. There is nothing interesting about Excalibur number 21. You don't even need to read it to keep up with what's going on in the Hellfire Gala event. I'm saying shelve it. There's nothing to it whatsoever. Yeah, shelve it. Morgan Le Fay comes back and no one seems to really care. So that's that's really about it. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. All the way through this, 
There is not one single thing to hang your hat on. Not, to me, one single point of interest. And it's not the characters. They've got good characters in it. I like Rogue. Rogue has always been one of my favorites. They even drag Nightcrawler into this issue and somehow make him uninteresting. Brian Maddock, I've liked him. Pete Wisdom, I've liked him. I like Betsy, too. I don't have a problem with her being Captain Britt. But somehow or other, when you put them into this comic book, it's all so damn boring. Just blah. They go out of their way. Somebody, we need to get rid of the baby from Jubilee. The baby needs to turn into a dragon and netherworld like she has before and flown off. Jubilee just, this is just not, there's a whole lot of these things that are just not working. And yeah, I don't even know how. Well, anyway, shelve Excalibur number 21. You agree, Albert? I agree. And from Image Comics, Geiger, number three, written by Jeff Johns, art by Gary Frank. I think the only thing holding me to this book right now is Gary Frank's art. I was about to say, this art is fantastic. Gary Frank is outdoing himself on this book. Damn, I thought he had outdone himself on Doomsday Clock. He's done a great job here. Jeff Johns has a tendency on some of his stuff where he's got a strong opening, stronger ending, but sometimes the second act of the story is weak. It's like there's some cool ideas and stuff in there, but we really haven't used them too much. So Mm -hmm. the book itself is worth it just for the Gary Frank art. The boy King and the Knights showing up have a real Atomic Atomic Knights. Yeah, I I assume those are highly inspired by the Atomic Knights. Yeah, I mean. They just don't have giant dogs. That's it. You're just missing the giant Dalmatians. There was no getting around the connection to Atomic Knights there. And I'm not, I'm not begrudging that one way or the other. It's not, it doesn't affect the story to me. I'm just, yeah, it's moving kind of slow here. That's what I'm feeling in this. But the artwork is more than enough to keep me on board. Yeah. Well, I didn't think it was particularly slow. This is the kind of pacing that you get nowadays in comics. I've enjoyed every issue. And like I said, the art is just fantastic. Honest to God, how could he have possibly improved between Doomsday Clock and this? And yet, damn, his stuff in Doomsday Clock was just some of the best stuff he's ever turned out till this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to say I was torn between Browse It and pull it, but I'm going to go ahead and say pull it, and that's simply off the strength of Gary Frank's art. Yeah, I say pull it. I, I mean, as a whole, when this thing ends, it'll be more than likely a fantastic story. I'm pulling it. I say pull it. It's it's a great read. I think I don't. I'm not having a problem with the pacing, and the art is just amazing. Pull that baby. <laughs> pull that baby. <laughs> Aftershock Comics, Maniac of New York, the last issue of First Story Art, written by Elliot Callen, art by Andre Muddy. So far as conclusions go, this was a far better conclusion than I thought we were going to get at the beginning of it. Yeah, it's pretty solid. Overall, I wasn't expecting anything out of this book, but the five issues out of there is pretty good. They give him an out so they could do another issue. They could do another run. This was fairly interesting. So far as when we first heard it was coming out and we read the pitch for it, neither one of us was overly excited for it. But this this actually had some substance to it. This was an interesting read. Mm-hmm. Yeah, violence is ultra-violent. The violence is very muted in the artwork. It's not gore for gore's sake. You, you basically see a lot of red. Throughout this book, uh, you know, throughout the entire, all five issues of it. Pick it up. I'm saying pull it. If you can't find all five issues, just wait and pick up the trade paperback. 
I agree. Uh, if you want sort of like a good horror slasher book, this, you can't really go wrong with this. It's very good. Five issues long, so there's not a lot of investment with it. They've already announced volume two. Yeah. And given that this character is a complete ripoff of Jason from Friday the 13th, there's a surprising amount of originality throughout the story. <laughs> there is. They do hint at some small stuff in volume one that they don't follow up yet. Yeah. But they show that little charm in the museum that's like his mask. But they, for the most part, it tells a complete story. No, I agree. Pull the issues or pull the trade paperback pull when it hits in a couple of weeks. And uh, also by Aftershock, and, and it's, a, it's a new issue one horror comic called Money Mask. It's written by Paul Tobin with the same artist, Andre Money. It's the same artist in art style as Maniac New York, but it's a completely different horror book. This one seems to be more of a, a guy gets captured and they find a weird cave and some stuff happens without spoiling this. If you read Maniac of, of New York and want a horror book like that, but a different style horror book, pick up Bunny Masks. It's really good. Pull it. Okay, so Bunny Mask number one, also from Aftershock Comics. Virtual Sandra, do you have anything to say about that? Name her, name her, name her! Okay, well, you heard it, folks. Also from Marvel Comics, Spider-Man, Spider-Shadow under the What If line. I cannot emphasize much how much I am enjoying this format for What If. This is issue number three of the Spider-Shadow, written by Chip Zdarsky, art by Pascal Ferry, and it, it is upping the ante. This is What If at its finest, What If at its best. Somebody had a good idea playing off an alternate take on one of the classic Marvel stories, and rather than rush it along and, and put it in just one issue, to come out one month, they've filled five issues with it. Not every idea is going to be able to fill five issues, but when you have an idea this good, a pitch this good, then you definitely want room to play with it, and that's what they've given Zadarsky. Peter Parker has embraced the symbiote rather than it rejecting it. After a series of events that spring from that, Peter decides he, you know, under the symbiote's influence, he has no problem killing. So it takes up from there. This particular issue, Spider-Man's remaining adversaries team up, forming a new version of the Sinister Six to go after him. The last few pages here are just very, very well done. Very nice. It's the most what-if comic I've read in a long, long time. So I definitely, definitely say pull it. That's Spider-Man, Spider-Shadow number three by Zadarsky and Ferry. Marvel Comics. X-Men, issue number 21. Hellfire Gala continues in X-Men number 21, written, of course, by Hickman. Art by Nick Dragotta, Russell Dodderman, Lucas Wernick, and Sarah Pacelli. I actually noticed where Sarah Pacelli took over in the book, but I was not a big fan of the opening of the art on the opening pages. The overall book is great. We didn't expect Namor, or we were not told that Namor was showing up at the gala because we saw no designs for him or anything else, and now he shows up at the gala. But the exchange, I thought, between him and Charles and Magneto, especially with Charles and Magneto being dressed so idiotically. While I'm not a big fan of the artwork on the Namor pages, the artwork does serve to show how ridiculous Magneto and Charles look in their gala outfits. But I thought it was a good exchange. Sandra, the big thing is when he tells Magneto and Charles to stuff it, did you notice who he immediately walks over to? Yeah. Which the I'm Illuminati like, minus I Xavier. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, like, I'm looking at this Illuminati going, uh, wait a minute here. Well, there, and Black Bolt. Black Bolt's not on there. 
Well, Black Bolt's dead or something. Black oh, Panther's yeah. there. Let's pretend like he is. It'll it'll work out best for everybody. <laughs> the only inhuman worth keeping is the dog, is Lockjaw. No, it's not. Name a better inhuman than Lockjaw. I like Black Bolt and Medusa and Tri. No, they're they're garbage. They're garbage characters. <laughs> they are not garbage characters. They were created by King Kirby, so they are not garbage characters. <laughs> Namor walks over to Iron Man, Reed Richards, Black Panther, Captain America, and Doctor Strange. That's the Illuminati minus Xavier. I thought they kicked off Captain America. Well, it's back and forth. Look, they're Illuminati enough. That's There's something to be said here. This is Hickman writing this. Namor is standing right beside the Black Panther, who is looking at Namor as though Namor is talking to Reed and Tony and the Black Panther is listening. So that tells me something. Does that not tell y'all something? Well, sure. It tells me that Hickman is not through with the Illuminati. Oh, Lord, no. Yeah, Albert, you pointed out the best scene in the Hellfire Gala so far up to this week was when Reed leaned in and whispered something to Xavier. Yeah. We know that the mutants have out now alienated the Fantastic Four. Namor is pissed because Namor is always pissed. Captain America seems to be running neutral on this. Black Panther does not at all like the fact that Storm stole his magic knife, even though she brought it back to him. Iron Man just, I just don't think Iron Man cares much for mutants. I'm going to go ahead and say. He he doesn't care much for their uh, economy and everything because he's a capitalist and they're not. I don't know. The Hellfire Club is making a lot of capitalist uh, fake. They're a bunch of fake socialists, but they're not a capitalist like Tony's a capitalist. Like somebody that opens up a retail shop and insists that they're not capitalists. Yeah. Similar situation here. My problem with this is that, well, it's not really a problem. We're, we're all waiting, Sandra. Well, I mean, it's not a problem, but I should point out that on this Illuminati, Iron Man and Captain America and Black Panther have been doing their best to kill Namor and his Defenders of the Deep and that ridiculous Phoenix tournament crap. That's not even continuity. Whatever Jason Aaron's doing <laughs> Avengers doesn't matter. I mean, it, it, obviously, it, it obviously doesn't matter in this book. Well, no, it doesn't matter. Tell me somewhere else where it matters outside of the Avenger book. It doesn't matter in Savage Avengers. It doesn't matter in any of the X books. It doesn't matter in the Fantastic Four. It doesn't matter in Spider-Man or the Hulk. None of what Jason Aaron is doing in the Avengers book has made it outside of the Avengers there, book. With the exception of there's a little bit of She-Hulk stuff in, in Mortal Hulk, and that's it. Basically, these three guys have been trying to kill Namor, and he's been using the Defenders of the Deep thing, and it's like none of that is happening. And then we're going to completely ignore the fact that Namor found out that Xavier, basically, is, Xavier has been screwing around with Namor's brain since 50s, or the Atlas era. I mean, there's no connection, or these characters aren't reacting to each other like they have any interactions. You're largely taking most of this from the Jason Aaron thing. The Zdarsky thing can still be read into this. This could, I mean, that could be an underlying reason that Namor just tells Xavier and Magneto, go screw themselves. He is impolite to them from the get-go. I mean, he's... I am a real king. Never forget this. You know, I would think that if I stepped into that council, that several people would stand up, bow, and give their seats up to me. That sort of thing. He's antisocial in that scene, even for Namor. This is how Hickman always writes Namor. More arrogant than I think Namor actually is. But 
I don't I don't know why Xavier or Magneto think, oh, well, of course you want to be with your people, the mutants, when they have hung Namor and he's only a mutant when it's convenient for them. And none of them ever came forward after AVX to help him out or Squadron Supreme to help him out or the Atlanteans. I don't know why they think that Namor, because he has an X gene, that he thinks of himself as a mutant. He just, because he gave because he gave Emma that island. He he has a soft spot for Emma. That's a soft spot for Emma, not I think I'm a mutant. And that's not yeah. No, he just he just was upset with Emma. Well, that's yeah. what I'm saying. That's still a soft spot. Yeah, even yeah, if it's just out there. Technically, it's a hard spot. So Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Albert. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Xavier and Magneto are drinking their own Kool-Aid. So how could yeah. Namor not want to be a part of this? And they're trying to rally Namor to their side because they need Namor. If they get Namor, they've got Atlantis. Considering that Krakoa is an island state, this would only serve to benefit them more. The, the thing I took away from this is the Illuminati scene. Is that yeah. definitely Illuminati minus any mutants standing there having a conversation among themselves. But for the listeners, do not take anything that's happening in Jason Aaron's Avenger run as having any impact on any other Marvel comic because it's just not. It's not. So just assume that the characters you're reading in there in the X-Books and the Immortal Hulk and such are the actual Avengers and whatever's going on in the Avenger book is a fever dream at this point because Sandra's right. Otherwise, it doesn't fit in. Yeah, it, it doesn't make any sense. And I, like you said, I, all I got from this was that Magneto and, I mean, I know Xavier's drinking the Kool-Aid, but I'd like to think Magneto had more sense than this, especially considering how he helped them and threw in his lot with them last time. And he got totally screwed over and they dumped him like as fast as they could, the mutants. So I really have no idea why they think Namor wants to sign on with them. I will say this is Hickman does tend to use Namor as he did in the new Avengers as the guy. And as Ms. Bendis did to a point too, is he's the guy that is sitting there with the pen ready to pop somebody's balloon when they float some nonsense. I know people don't see it this way, but on the Illuminati, Namor is the voice of reason. <laughs> he's, the, he's the only one that said, Oh hell no, I'm not no, firing. The whole not. That, that was Steve. And when they mind controlled Steve, no. and got rid of him, that's when it fell apart. No, that's no, no, my Hitman, God. Steve, Steve was the only one that said it, that said at the very start of the planet incursions and stuff said, we're not going to talk about a doomsday device. That's we're going to find it. another way. Because yeah. once we start talking about it, y'all plan it. And then when y'all plan it, you'll make it. And when you make it, we'll use it. And at that point, there's no turning back. He was the only one that stood up and said that. And when they got rid of him, they went and did everything Steve said that they would do if it, if they started it and, and it all went wrong for him. God bless Captain America. No, I mean, Steve yes, was the yes. one. No. Namor was My not God. the voice of reason. Namor was the one that would <laughs> that would take the steps to do what needed to be done. If we had listened to Steve, we'd have been dead after that second occurred. Sandra. Yeah. Sandra, remind me, when Kingdom Comics was open and you walked in the store, what was the first thing you saw on that far back wall? Was it a taxidermied fish or was it Captain America's shield? 
Well, that doesn't mean Steve was right in that. That was a whole mess. It Steve, means Steve, Steve is always did, right. No, man. Steve did not belong on the Illuminati. When Bendis put him on the Illuminati, which I don't know if that was his ideal or Hickman's ideal, that was completely out of character. That is like something that Steve would never have done. He would never have joined a bunch of elitist. If I recall correctly, he didn't, re- he didn't really have much of a choice once he found out because he was brought on after the worlds started colliding. No, he was brought on before, and the only reason he showed up, Bendis had him in, written in as an Illuminati when they brought the Infinity Stones together. Let's just all agree that Steve was right, and we'll move on here. <laughs> There's a very important cameo in this issue that Cyclops talks to. Exactly. That's what I was going on to next. Is this the announcement? Did Marvel just... Pull one over on everybody and Feige showing up, specifically asking Cyclops, what's your story? Cyclops should have told him to take that ball cap off. Really? (laughs) (laughs) If Cyclops takes off whatever the hell he's wearing on his face. (laughs) I mean, this is a big gala with world leaders and powerful people. And this man shows up wearing a ball cap like he's going to some 10-year-old's birthday party. You leave Feige alone. So what what do you make of that? Do you is that the announcement? Is that is that just telling us, look, the the mutants are coming? Well, I mean, we all know the X-Men are coming in the movies. That's stupid to think anything. As far as this comic book goes, it was just a a, probably a neat thing they throw in there because there's all these other stupid celebrity cameos that I'm supposed to care about. Like you really think I give I give a crap if Pat Oswald is is in a panel of a comic. I gotta tell you, the Patton Oswalt for this gala to do what what they wanted the gala to do, which is cement relationships among the uber powerful and rich and the nations that haven't come around to the Krakoa treaties. For this gala to accomplish this, we're supposed to expect that Conan O'Brien and Patton Oswalt are relevant at all to any of this. I see George R. R. Martin in the background also. A couple of people that I know they think that we're supposed to recognize, but Marvel has never had any problem drawing in world leaders in its comic books. The sitting president of the United States is always the president that has to deal with whatever's going on. Jimmy Carter had to deal with the Dark Phoenix saga. Reagan gave Captain America his shield and uniform back after the whole U.S. agent thing also granted him his autonomy. Just draw the world leaders in there. And if you want a couple of high-end celebs, draw George Clooney in the background. I mean, I don't believe him any more than I do Patton Oswald, but at least it's... And I'm not picking on Patton. I'm really not. I just... Why, why are he and Conan... Why... Who are they relevant to other than 90s kids? They're there just like Feige is and just like all the characters that are in the MCU that are getting a push. I mean... Well, I can understand like why... Why for this, if you put Feige in there? But no, and the other ones don't play any role at all. Other than Patton Oswald is the voice of MODOK. And again, and if you haven't been, seen MODOK on Hulu, don't. And That's, he's been in... Ratatouille. He was great in Ratatouille. He was in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Uh, that still doesn't qualify him. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know what, Stan? I just... I'm not asking you to justify him being there. I'm just complaining about him being there, Sandra. You don't have to sell him to me. (laughs) And also, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has of Loki has been dismissed as another continuity. Episode one of Loki seems to do that out of hand. Where did it do that? I don't remember seeing that. 
the time variance authority bringing up that the Avengers formed around the death of agents of Agent Coulson and not at any time saying, oh, but he was brought back or even though he didn't die or anything like that. The Agent Coulson thing plays a big part in Luke Wilson. Basically, I don't know if you'd call it deprogramming, but debriefing Loki. I didn't know. I just uh, just because he doesn't, he just says he he was brought back to life. Doesn't there's mean he wasn't. There's just no evidence of Agents of Shield having occurred inside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe on the side of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's evidence that events in the Marvel Cinematic Universe happened in the same reality that Agents of Shield did in Agents of Shield, but not vice versa. Okay. Overall, overall, what did you think of this book, Sandra? Shelve it. Buy it. Pull, I'm sorry, shelve it, pull it, browse it. If you're into the X books, I think you would have to buy it. And if you're a Namor fan, you have to buy it. And I really like Russell Downerman's art, and he's clearly an X fan. So, yeah. Yeah. I'm saying it's a definite pull. I'm saying that not just because of the Gallup, but there's a lot of political intrigue. I mean, dear God, we've just spent more time on this one comic discussing the first four pages and what it means intrinsically to the mutant nation of of Krakoa and the rest of the Marvel Universe than we've spent on any other comic book we've reviewed. This is storytelling at its finest. So definitely pull it. Yeah, I'd say pulled as well. For the most part, most of the Hellfire Gala books were pretty good. Yeah. Excalibur one was pretty bad. The Hellions one was really great. Yeah. To be sort of a non-event, I enjoyed it. Me too. Me too. It's not over yet, but uh, X-Men number 21, definite. Hell, we were all drawn into it, especially Sandra. That's right. Well, I'm... You know, five pages. Yeah, five pages. (laughs) I'm also kind of wondering if this always gets brought up whenever you try to talk about Hickman's Secret Wars is that that stupid ending. What actually happened there? Did it get returned to the time before the incursions with the time no, stone? No, no, no. All that, all, that, all that stuff happened and got it just got remade, I thought. To understand what happens at the end of Secret Wars, you have to know what happens at the beginning. Doom faced down the, the Beyonders, plural, with Molecule Man and Stephen Strange. At one point during Secret Wars, Stephen Strange tells Doom, we both looked into the abyss, but you were the one that didn't blink. Yeah, but a lot, of, a lot of this was all set up and done through his Avenger stuff. Yeah. The Beyonders succeeded in destroying everything, but Doom, through defeating the Beyonders, utilizing the Molecule Man's power and strength, as well as what he's gained from the Beyonders, saved fragments of everything and pulled it together in Battle World, which took the majority of his willpower to hold together and to keep these fragments in place. That's why one section of Battle World was not allowed to cross over with another section of Battle World. Otherwise, it would be the domino effect. At the end, that annoying damn Richards shows up, and thanks to Peter Parker and Miles Morales, Richards has figured out, because he would have never got this on his own, that Molecule Man was generating and and helping amplify Doom's power to hold all of Battle World together. Doom and Reed physically battle in the chamber that Molecule Man exists, and Molecule Man is being hands-off in this to see who gets to decide what. And so at the end of it, because... 
reasons, but no good reasons, Reed ends up being able to utilize the memories and everything to reassemble the core Marvel reality. Then with Franklin and Franklin's powers no, being off. No, that's not quite right. You're, you're uh, skipping a very important part. The existence of everything hinges on a fifth fight between Doom and Reed. Yeah. With Beyonder watching it. Uh, Molecule Man. Molecule Man watching it, and Doom admits that it reads better than him. Uh, Well, you see Doom's wrong in that. They're at the very end where it's just like a second away from everything just blinking out of existence. And Beyonder just gets Molecule Molecule Man. Man goes, well, since you said it and we're in agreement, snaps his fingers and puts everything back. The main thing he changed, one, is that Reed and them go off and make the multiverse. Yeah. And, through Franklin. And because Miles gave Molecule Owen. Man a hamburger out of his pocket mm-hmm. that he had brought on, brought on the trip because Molecule Man was starving, the, was, was super hungry, and he, he saved Miles from un, the Ultimate Universe being wiped out and brought him over. Yeah, along with his family and his supporting yeah. cast. Reed and the Molecule Man, Franklin's powers are universe-defining, are left on what's left of Battle World, Reed is guiding, Reed and Sue are guiding Franklin into recreating the multiverse. Leaves the Fantastic Four gone for about two years from continuity. Ben and Johnny are okay and show back up in the standard Marvel Universe. But just because Doom said that doesn't mean he's right. It means that Doom thinks that on some level. We all know that Reed is way down the chart. He's he's barely smarter than Hercules. Oh, is, right is that true? Yeah. I think Reed ranks right there under Squirrel Girl so far as intellectual ability. Doom being the first, Tony being the second, and then you get on down there and then you got Squirrel Girl, Reed, Modoc, Demolition Dude or D-Man, Mole Man. And <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, we all agree, buy this X-Men book. <laughs> Reed is only slight, slightly smarter than Stupid Man. <laughs> well, four Bushman, four Bushman. That, that big old long spiel for a question that didn't get answered, which is after it was all done, there was supposed to be a lot of people that didn't remember what was going on, and then some people remembered. It was a very confusing ending, Doom, and Doom that was remember. not. Who remembers? Not- Miles doesn't remember. Peter doesn't remember, even though they were right there at the event. Reed remembers. I think so. Yeah, Reed and Sue remember. Franklin remembers. Valeria remembers, and Doom remembers. And the Molecule Man, in whatever form he currently exists in, remembers also. And that was another part we left out. The core formation of each of the Marvel realities revolves around a piece of the Molecule Man. Because Franklin was literally segmenting off a piece of Molecule Man's essence to create new realities at the end. (laughs) Anyway. Anyway. Okay, and that's going to round out the comics for this week. Now we're going to make some picks and risk picks for the week of June 16th, 2021. Who wants to go first on that one? I will. The first one is Flash number 771. I've really enjoyed this Quantum Leap style Flash book. Someone did some message that they did a Superman book like this in the early 90s when they were doing, I think, believe the triangle yeah. numbering. Yeah. But this has been a fantastic book, and the cover implies that they're going to maybe piddle around with Heroes in Crisis. Maybe they'll, they found the way to undo do all that garbage. God, I hope so. God, I hate Tom King. Uh, (laughs) 
My second pick of the week is Ultra Mega number four, the end of the first story arc. We're sort of getting back to where we have more giant superhero kaiju stuff in the book. So this is sort of the birth of a new Ultra Mega. This has been just a fantastic book. Anyone that remotely likes Ultraman or stuff like Japanese Sentai shows or anything like that. Just really, really should give this a shot. My third pick of the week is Keanu Reeves' Berserker number three, mostly written by Matt Kent with Rob Gardy on artwork. Uh, This book was surprisingly a really great book. Uh, I didn't expect much to it, but they did a great two issues so far. Issue three is this book I'm really looking forward to. My two wrist picks. The first one is Alien number four. I've really enjoyed that book, but it's not for everyone. If if you sort of like the first two Alien movies, this is sort of in that tone. It's written by Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Salvador LaRocca. It's been a solid read. It really has. Yeah, it's it's been a real good read. I mean, it's not necessarily for everybody, but, but it's better than the majority of the Dark Horse stuff. Yeah, yeah. And my other risk pick is Milestone Return Static Number 1. This artist is Chris Croft, who I don't remember the last thing he did. I like Uh, his art, though. Yeah. Covers and stuff. He must, because I don't remember where he's been up to. And Ryder is Vita Ayala. They pull out Milestone every once in a while, and Static is usually on the top end of that as far as quality goes. So I'm looking forward to it. Hopefully it'll be a good book. But it's sort of a risk pick, because you really don't know. That's my stuff. One of my main picks is going to be Norse Mythology to their second miniseries, the first issue of their second miniseries. And that, of course, is from Neil Gaiman's book. P. Craig Russell is doing the, the art. And the first one was awesome. Grab this book. Anyway, that's going to be my only real pick. I'm, in fact, this, so what I'm going to do this time is I'm going to pick three or four wrist picks. Madman Volume 1 by the All Reds is getting the library treatment from library edition treatment from Dark Horse. And let me tell you, the library edition treatment from Dark Horse is a fabulous, fabulous format for books. I mean, the paper is thick. It's gorgeous. It's smooth. The binding is great. It's oversized. And best of all, it's reasonably priced. Think of Marvel Masterworks type format, you know, the high quality of that, but multiply it by 10. And that is a library edition from Dark Horse. They did one for Mignola's Hellboy. I just read Joella Jones' Lady Killer in that format. If you have any interest in the All Reds or their book or Madman, which is supposed to be the book from them, the first volume of that is coming out in a super great edition. Madman is a pretty good read. Yeah. It is. It's a a fun comic. It is. Yeah. Uh, If you want a high quality version of this, get this book. Another risk pick. I'm not really keen on the art, but Image is putting out something called Compass Number One, The Cauldron of Eternal Life. I'm not familiar with these writers. The writers are Robert McKenzie and Dave Walker. The artist is Justin Greenwood. I'm not really impressed by that art that I see on the cover by Justin Greenwood, but the pitch on this, it's set in the 13th century. It's an Arab scholar, cartographer, astronomer, mathematician, scientist, explorer, adventurer, and we needed be two-fisted fighter. Anyway, he's leaving Baghdad and during the Islamic Golden Age, and he uh, arrives at 13th century Britain, where the Welsh are whispered to possess the secret of eternal life. And apparently there's other people after it. It's set in the Old Guard universe. Oh, and this artist is the guy that did Stumptown. Mm. 
I'm not really fond of him. But anyway, I, I really like that concept. I enjoy the uh, old guard universe. I'm going to try that out. Another one of my risk picks is something called Seven Swords from Aftershock. The writer is Evan Daltrey. And the illustrator is Ricardo Matina. has a great cover by Andy Clark. And this is a Three Musketeers tale. It's after Three Musketeers. It has the D'Artagnan, once again, facing off against Cardinal Richelieu. I'm a sucker for that kind of stuff. So I am uh, definitely going to try that. And my last risk pick is Space Pirate Captain Harlock, number one, which is coming out from Ablaze Comics. I know, I'm woefully ignorant. I know Captain Harlock, I mean, everybody has any interest in manga or anime knows about this character, but I I just know of him. I haven't actually seen or read anything about him. So I thought, yeah, okay, let me try this. The writer and artist is going to be someone named Jerome Alqui, but I'll try the first issue. I need to be educated. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Uh, although yeah, I, I, guess, saw, I saw that I saw that was coming out. I may I may uh, browse it to see what it. See yeah, what it is. I mean, I guess I should really start my education in watching the anime. I'm going to try this comic first. My picks for June 16th, 2021, right out of the gate, is going to be Fantastic Four number 33. I know we've been lukewarm at best on this title, but the last issue was pretty engaging, pretty entertaining, and this is the 60th anniversary celebration with Doom's wedding. Given the fact that Johnny Storm has slept with Doom's bride beforehand, I'm in for this ride. This should be pretty... You're going to have to work to mess up the premise. You hear me, Dan Slott? You're going to have to work <laughs> to mess up this premise. The writer is Dan Slott, art by R.B. Silva. I love R.B. Silva's art. I feel this is a safe bet as the first pick out of the gate. My second pick that is a definite no-brainer for the week of June 16th, 2021, is Wonder Girl number 2, written and drawn by Joelle Jones. Loved the first one. She was the only good thing about Future State. This is an excellent character. You need to hop on board this now. There's no downside to this comic. Wonder Girl number two by Joelle Jones from DC Comics. Then I'm going to jump over and say my third pick of the week is going to be Planet Size X-Men number one. Again, tying into the Hellfire Gala situation. I kind of think that this is the issue where things are going to happen. Whatever leads into the trial of Magneto, Whatever the point of the Hellfire Gala is, I think it's going to take place in Planet Size X-Men number one. And you've got a top-notch team on it written by Jerry Dugan, of course, Jonathan Hickman overseeing all the X-Books, art by Pepilares. I'm enjoying this. I didn't expect I would enjoy, enjoy the Hellfire Gala, but here I am enjoying the Hellfire Gala. And I've got a feeling that Planet Size X-Men number one is where crap is going to go down for the mutants, where mutant crap will be going down. So all of you mutant crap fans, jump on board Planet Size X-Men number one. My two risk picks are going to be Jupiter's Legacy Requiem number one. I assume that this book was meant to coincide with the release of Jupiter's Legacy on Netflix, which has, we learned last week, was canceled and will not be getting a season two. Writer on it is Mark Miller and the art, it will be done by Tommy Lee Edwards. Look, Jupiter's Legacy is a good comic book, whether or not it made it as a Netflix series. 
I'm calling it a risk pick because I think maybe this was just meant to kind of promo or draw people into the Netflix show, which is not going to get a season two now. I'm definitely picking it up. I'll read anything Mark Miller does. Jupiter's Legacy Requiem, number one from Image Comics. My second risk pick for the week will be... I don't call Stillwater a risk pick anymore. I think it's pretty solid. Have you been reading it? Yeah. Oh, okay. I've enjoyed it. Is that Supergirl this week? Or I'm not recommending. Yes, Tom King. I'm not recommending it. He'll probably have her get (laughs) or something. Good Lord. All right. For my second risk pick, I'm going to go way out there from Boom Studios. It's a boom box, which usually means it's appropriate for all ages. Save Yourself, number one, written by Bones Leopard and art by Kelly Matthews. The cover looks very animation-esque, very engaging. The setup for it is, what if magical girls weren't Earth's champion at all? It just looks, it looks bright. It looks colorful. So this is a real risk pick. Save yourself, number one, from Boom, Bo- from Boom Studios. Okay, so, you know, on this week, obviously, I was looking at the trades here, and they have Heroes Reborn Omnibus, which mm, they also have the Classic Power Pack Volume 2 Omnibus. And I just have to ask our listeners, how in the world do we have not one, but two Power Pack Omnibuses from Marvel, and yet we do not have Submariner's Silver Age Omnibus? Does that make any sense whatsoever. Yeah, it makes perfect sense because the people spending money grew up with Power Pack. They were targeted. Power Pack was a targeted situation for young comic readers, and it was one of the rare situations that actually got the target audience it went after, amazingly enough, that today it's hard enough getting kids into comics. Back then, it was still hard, but Power Pack managed to do it. Now those kids that read Power Pack, they're in their 30s and, you know, nostalgia. You know what? Kids in their 30s don't have any money. It's us old geezers that have some money. Not me, but other old geezers. <laughs> exactly. That's what's wrong with society. And they want that Submariner Omnibus. We, hey, we've gotten a whole... It's not like they don't have this material already mastered and ready to go. There are seven Submariner Silver Age Marvel Masterworks. Slap that stuff together and give us an omnibus. Good Lord Almighty. Two power pack. Listeners, please. Write in to Marvel and and demand your right. Submariner 1968 Silver Take Age. Take out your quill. Get your, get your parchment. <laughs> yeah. Get your family stamp and wax so Marvel knows <laughs> it's legitimately from you. Don't bother with tweeting. Right. <laughs> yeah, or email. Get Go to the post office and get a stamp. <laughs> I think Sandra just asked her, answered her own question. <laughs> Seriously, come on, man. Two power pack. That's just wrong. Postmaster, here's two pence for my parchment. Could you please deliver these to the kindly gents at Marvel? (laughs) Oh, that was good. (laughs) You got any more comedy material, Sandra? That is not comedy material. Seriously. Let your Marvel collections people know. I need to find their address so I can uh, give that to everybody <laughs> next time. Two power packs. While we're bitching, while we're bitching, if you notice that John Christopher is still doing those amazing action figure covers, variant covers, 
like if if this was an action figure this you know this is what it would have in it and all this other stuff uh he's got to have done at least a hundred of them i think he's actually got either a trade or an oversized floppy of his variant covers of the action figures and do you know that there is not a single one that of action figure namer there are there's there is an action figure cover for freaking Stingray, and we have not yet gotten an action figure cover from John Christopher of Namor, the first Marvel superhero. Other than it's, going down to the library to find the New York City phone book and looking up Marvel's address, if you download the app Twitter <laughs> And you type in the at sign and type Marvel, Marvel Entertainment pops up. You can touch that logo and then say whatever you want to them, and they get it instantly. (laughs) Well, start downloading that app or whatever. But my God, these are serious, serious injustices from Marvel. Yep. Download Twitter. It's the wave of the future. Get on board now. Get in on this ground floor now. All you younglings out there, <laughs> right? Get your quill out. Get your little ink. <laughs> I'm serious. I'll get. I'll get the. I'll get the addresses for you. Dan <laughs> can insert who you need to write. <laughs> Actually, I think I have one of their emails yet. It's okay, Sandra. I, I think everybody out there that hears this knows how they can get in touch with Marvel instantly. <laughs> Okay, this looks to be as good a place as any to wrap everything up. So thank you once again to our sponsors, IVIwatches.com. Go to IVIwatches.com, type in the code KINGDOM, get 25% of your uh, 25% off. And also to Kristen Griffin of Key to the World Travel. Kristen is a responsible, smart, well-connected travel agent who can help you take the trip of your life, no matter what the destination is. Although she specializes in Disney World, she has the experience and know-how to send you anywhere in the world you want to go. Lebanon is lovely this time of year. <laughs> she, she knows the ins and outs, and her advice has proven invaluable. For instance, she told me, don't go to Lebanon. <laughs> so leave your trips to the professional. Contact Kristen Griffin at Key to the World Travel today and pack your bags. Key to the World Travel on Facebook, Kristen Griffin, that's K-R-Y-S-T-E-N-G-R-I-F-F-I-N, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter also. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you again to our wonderful rogues gallery of content providers. Y'all come through repeatedly. Thank you so very much. But most importantly, thank you to you, the listeners. God bless each and every one of you. Thank you for the great numbers. Thank you for the great responses. If you're new to us and you're just joining us and you like what you hear, give us give us the top rating. Give us all of those stars, four or five, whatever it is. Give us all the stars and share us with your friends. Make them listen to us. If you have to suffer through it, so should they. Thank you all to our listeners. And of course, As always, special thanks to Sandra Swindle and Albert Marsh. Thank you both, guys. Any final words, Sandra? Uh, Yeah. Go right ahead. I'll just set the timer (laughs) and sit down over here. (laughs) Watch Sweet Tooth on Netflix if you haven't. I haven't, Eventually, we. I was going to say, eventually, Stan will watch it and we can talk about it. But it is an awesome series. It's only eight episodes, I think. I will. I will. I will. We'll we'll talk about it hopefully on the next program. Albert, do you have any final words? No, not tonight, I suppose. 
And I have nothing clever to say because the last two th- clever things I said at the end of the last two episodes, none of you took to that well. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to sign off and say, try not to kill each other and Godspeed. <laughs> Tell them good night, guys. Good night, everybody. Good night. Talk to you next week. Kingdom Casts is owned by Kingdom Comics Incorporated and produced by Stan Daniel and Albert Marsh. No part of this program may be reproduced, replicated, or replayed without permission. Special thanks to Sandra Swindle. Also, thank you to our content contributors, Jason Bean, Tim Bryant, Cornelius Burroughs, Denise Daniel, Josh Duke, Alex Fitzpatrick, Hatcher, Charles Hickey, Ali Marceau, Joseph Koloski, Katrina Olstead, and Angela Pickett. Logo designed by Geoffrey Gwynn. Edited by Stan Daniel. Kingdom Casts is copyrighted 2021. All rights reserved. Do <laughs> do